it is easy to forget how much technology has changed our lives. For example, these days, most people have a handy device in their pocket or their purse, a cell phone, which they can use to pull out at a moment's notice and shoot video or take pictures. But 50 years ago, this was not the case. Sure, there were many thousands, maybe millions of people who owned cameras that shot actual still photographs. Rarer still were those individuals that chose to pursue making movies. And in most cases, people made those movies at home or on vacation. There weren't too many people walking around the streets toting a movie camera. And the movie cameras of the 1960s were by no means technological marvels. There was no image stabilization. There was no digital zoom. You actually shot on a piece of film that was loaded into the camera by hand. Usually you had a total film time of three minutes or less. And if you wanted the camera to work at all in order to move the film through the camera and past the lens, you would actually have to physically hand crank the camera to wind it up, as it were, as you would an old wristwatch. Against this backdrop, today we'll tell you the story of what is arguably the most famous piece of home movie footage ever shot in the history of the world. Welcome to the Nordonia Hills Branch Library podcast on nonfiction, a discussion of nonfiction specifically and reading generally. Today's podcast, 26 Seconds. Abraham Zapruder was a Russian immigrant. Born in May of 1905, he and his mother and his siblings came to America in 1920. As a young man, he became educated, fell in love and married, and eventually moved to Dallas, Texas with his wife Lillian and their children. In 1963, Mr. Zapruder was the owner of a dress manufacturing company entitled Jennifer Juniors, whose offices and factory was located in downtown Dallas. Abe possessed considerable intellectual curiosity. Among his many hobbies and pursuits, he took up amateur photography and film. When Mr. Sabruder heard that John F. Kennedy and his wife Jacqueline were going to be coming to visit the Dallas area in November, he was thrilled. On November 22, 1963, Abe Zapruder considered bringing his movie camera with him when he came into the office, since the motorcade route would pass mere blocks from where he was located. But he decided against it and left his movie camera at home. When he got to Jennifer Jr.'s, His assistant and his receptionist convinced him that he needed to go back and pick up that movie camera and bring it because they knew he would regret it later if he passed up this opportunity to see the president and the first lady. And so Abe went back home, retrieved his camera, and came back into the office. That trip home was the first of many trips that Mr. Zapruder would be taking on November 22nd. Abe and his assistant, along with a few other employees of the company, walked a few blocks to Dealey Plaza so he would have a better viewing spot for his camera. While he searched for a good vantage point along the curb on Elm Street, 
His receptionist suggested a four-foot concrete block set into the hill on the side of the street, but higher up from curb level. Standing on this block gave Abe a perfect vantage point to survey the entire sweep of Elm Street as it passed in front of him from left to right. When the presidential motorcade arrived in Dealey Plaza around 12.30, Abe was able to film the entire pass of the motorcade from left to right across his viewfinder. Nearly everyone has seen the film that Mr. Zapruder shot that day. Abe was not the only one with a movie camera in Dealey Plaza that afternoon. There were at least four others. But his is the one that is the most remembered because his is the one that has the best view of the events as they unfolded. Abe Zapruder saw through his camera that President Kennedy had been fatally shot. Most of the rest of America, including people that were there on the plaza with him and in surrounding Dallas, would not find out for quite a while yet that Kennedy was gone. One of the points that this book makes is that Zapruder carried that information around with him from the very instant it occurred. The story that I am telling is from the book 26 Seconds by Alexandra Zapruder, Abraham Zapruder's granddaughter. The author does a fine job in recounting the details not only of November 22nd, but of Abraham Zapruder, his wife and children and family, and the film itself that he shot as it's made its way down through the years. As close as she is to the family and the story that is involved here, she does a remarkable job of keeping her entire account very even-handed. She is very fair, and it is scrupulously researched. She also is able to provide a personal perspective on what it means to have grown up with not just a famous name attached to a film, the Zapruder film, but also what it means to have such a unique last name. If the film had been named the Smith film, just because you happen to be named Smith doesn't necessarily mean that anyone would identify you with that film, but calling it the Zapruder film meant that you were going to be singled out or recognized much more easily because the name is so much more unique. Getting back to the events of November 22nd in that weekend, which forms the first part of this book, we find out that after the film was shot, there was almost immediately people who recognized he had a piece of history, or at least something of significance, in his camera. Almost from the very moment that the motorcade had passed by, he started to be besieged by the media. Abe had a strong sense of duty, both to the country, as well as the Kennedy family, and especially Jacqueline Kennedy. He was very concerned about the images on that film getting out where it would cause pain, embarrassment, or some other negative emotion to Jackie Kennedy. Throughout that Friday, he was waiting for someone from the Secret Service to contact him so that he could hand over the film to them so that it would be safe. Eventually, the head of the Dallas Secret Service office heard that there was a business owner who had an office on Elm Street who had film which may show the assassination. So he headed there. Abe was very ready to turn it over to him, but they had to get it developed first. A reporter from the Dallas newspaper suggested there was a TV station right next to his newspaper offices, and they could try there. In a remarkable turn of events, the ABC station was on air discussing the assassination when they heard that Abe was there in the studios waiting to have his film developed. They rushed him on air, 
and Mr. Zapruder found himself before the cameras on live TV. As it turned out, the TV studio wasn't able to develop the film, so everyone piled into some cars, and they drove out to the Kodak lab, which is out by Love Field, the airport where the president had just landed not too long ago. As the cars approached the Kodak lab, they could see the blue presidential plane taking off from Love Field, heading back to Washington, D.C. It took an hour at the Kodak lab to develop the film. The actual film of the assassination is 26 seconds long and comprised of 486 individual frames of footage. Now that the film was developed, they want duplicates made as well because the Secret Service wanted copies to send back to Washington, D.C. for analysis. Unfortunately, Kodak couldn't make duplicates of the film. They could only develop the original. So they went to a third place, the Jameson Film Company. There, the technicians produced three copies of the film. Throughout all of this, Abraham Zapruder accompanied the film and watched every move that the technicians made and where it was going. Once the duplicates were made, everyone had to drive back over to Kodak to process the duplicates. Copy 1 went to the Secret Service office in Dallas. Copy 3 went back to Washington, D.C., and Abe had the original and Copy 2. By the time Abe Zapruder got back to his home in suburban Dallas, it was after 10 o'clock in the evening. He hadn't been home since he had gone back to retrieve his movie camera earlier that morning. The first thing he did when he came into the house was to set up his movie projector and screen, because he had still not seen the movie that he had shot. He and his wife and daughter watched the film in horror. Even before he got home that evening, as well as throughout the weekend, the telephone continued to ring. Time after time, call after call, media outlets seeking that film from Zapruder, wanting to buy the rights to it, offering thousands of dollars as payment. The last call that Abe took that night was from Dick Stolle, a correspondent with Life magazine. It was Stolle's empathy and gentle approach to Abe, along with the fact that Life magazine was considered a very classy organization, that convinced Abe to sell the rights to Life magazine for the film. From there, the story of the film proceeds across the decades. Life magazine did its best to honor Zapruder's wishes that the film should not just be released to the general public, out of respect to Jackie Kennedy and the family. There is discussion throughout the book about this struggle within the hallways of Life magazine. And not just the film itself, but actual individual frames. The infamous frame 313, which actually shows the final shot which hit the president in the head. The story of the film is a long and winding one. Abe Zapruder passed away at the age of 65 in 1970. Later on after that, Life magazine wound up selling the rights back to the Zapruder family in the mid-1970s. The book details how the Zapruder family had to manage access to the film as they were inundated with requests from reporters, writers, authors, researchers, and students. Abe's son, Henry, a lawyer, was the one who was primarily responsible for handling these requests. It is apparent that Henry took this task on very seriously and did a Herculean effort in terms of keeping his father's wishes upheld and trying to do what's best for all involved. Eventually, bootleg copies of the film start showing up in the 70s, 
and the first public airing of the film on television occurred in the mid-1970s, broadcasted on a show hosted by a young Geraldo Rivera. While the Zapruders were paid $125,000 by Life magazine for the film's rights, they donated the first 25000 of it to the J.D. Tippett family. J.D. Tippett was the Dallas police officer who was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald on the day of the assassination. Eventually, a law was passed in the 1990s which allowed the federal government to take possession of any assassination evidence or documents that they deemed worthy or necessary to have in the National Archives. The law triggered a serious negotiation between the government and the Zapruder family, who were the rightful owners of the film and its rights, but these negotiations broke down and eventually a lawsuit was filed between the Zapruder family and the government to settle the matter of how much this film was worth. It was a fascinating part of the book to determine how the government and the Zapruder family would value a film such as this. There's a very interesting discussion about bringing in experts who valued these kinds of artifacts, but in this case, there was very little comparable artifact to the Zapruder film that they could point to and say, this is how this was valued, therefore, this is how this should be valued. The Zapruder film was so unique that they had to come up with a sort of compromise way to value this film. Currently, the film rests in the National Archives. It is generally considered far too fragile to be run through a normal film projector some 55 years later, but it is still there, preserved for posterity. Alexandra Zapruder peppers her story with all sorts of interesting personalities, takes time to make side detours into specifics about the camera and about the negotiations and about the different people who are involved with the process along the way, how the film got to where it is today. Some people come off looking very honorable, very noble, very respectful of the entire process. Some people, like Dan Rather, comes off as looking rather boorish, if not downright obnoxious. In terms of a slice of history, this film has very few equals, if any. Nowadays, you don't need a film projector and a screen to set up in order to view this film. You can just go to your computer and click on YouTube and watch the film in its entirety. As I said at the outset, nowadays the ubiquity of handheld cameras and smartphones, as well as the 24-hour news cycle, many, many historic events are covered from multiple angles by multiple cameras. Back in 1963, that was not the case, which is one of the reasons it makes this film so unique. We encourage you to pick up and read this book, 26 Seconds, by Alexandra Zapruder. It is well-written, well-researched. It describes a particularly dark chapter in American history, but also on the particular personal effects it had on one noble person and his family. Join us again next month when we'll discuss another topic on nonfiction. Until then, we will see you at your Nordonia Hills Branch Library. Music by 20 Riverside, provided by Mevio's Music Alley, music.mevio.com. Thanks for listening.